This is Deb Donig with Technically Human, a podcast about ethics and technology, where I ask what it means to be human in the age of tech. Each week, I interview industry leaders, thinkers, writers, and technologists, and I ask them about how they understand the relationship between humans and the technologies we create. We discuss how we can build a better vision for technology, one that represents the best of our human values. In this episode of the 22 Lessons on Ethics and Technology series, I sit down with Dr. Pavel Chenkel. Dr. Chenkel is the head of Schumacher College and the Director of Learning and Land at Dartington Trust. He has worked for more than two decades in higher education in America, and he has always been drawn to colleges and universities whose curriculum fully integrates learning with practice and thinking with embodiment. Having taught and served as Dean for nearly 15 years at Vermont Sterling College, Dr. Chenkel brings a depth of experience to Schumacher College's unique approach to experiential learning. While pursuing research in ecologically-minded curriculum design and teaching courses in environmental philosophy, Dr. Chenkel is also a passionate endurance and adventure runner. Over the past five years and through a project called Climate Run, he has covered hundreds of miles in the Arctic and subarctic on foot in order to bring attention to the connection between our bodies and the more than human world in the face of rapidly changing climate. Dr. Chenkel holds a PhD in English literature and he is the author of many articles, chapters, and two books, Nature and Culture in the Northern Forest, Region, Heritage, and Environment in the Rural Northwest, published by the University of Iowa Press in 2010, and This Vast Book of Nature, Writing the Landscape of New Hampshire's White Mountains, 1784 to 1911, published by Iowa University Press in 2006. He is currently working on a book titled Resilience in the North, Adventure, Endurance, and the Limits of the Human, which threads together personal narrative and observation with environmental philosophy and reflections on what it means to be human. You know, this is really interesting to me because I spend a lot of time thinking about what I think a lot of educators right now are thinking a lot about, which is the fact that we face ongoing and I think growing sense in which our institutions are less, you might say, educational. They are less democratic. They are less interested in embodying a kind of ethic of teaching or ambition to really foreground learning as that kind of ambition recedes to the background and business dimension of higher education becomes uh, the guiding principle of education. As head of Schumacher College and the director of learning for the Dartington Hall Trust, how do you grapple or conversely, how do you even leverage higher education being a business when the integrity values and principles of Schumacher's philosophy separate it, I think, from many of uh, traditional educational institutions? Mm, that's a great question. It's, and it's one that I probably never stopped thinking about, to be honest. And we could go on for some time talking about it. So ultimately, Dartington Trust is a charity. It needs to you know, sustain itself. And largely, it sustains itself through the educational you know, programs and you know, course delivery that, that we offer. And it's really interesting to think about everything that we do in terms of widening participation, widening access, um, democratizing access to some of our learning programs making sure that we have as, as broad a diversity of stakeholders, constituencies participating in the programs, whether it's through development or actually students engaging in the coursework. And all of that does really need to be balanced with sort of the realities of our own you know, existence as, as an organization and institution. And you know, thinking about us in the context of 
maybe more traditional academic universities, one, we're tiny. So we need to sort of think about the context. We have right now about 120 students enrolled in postgraduate programs. And hopefully by next year, we'll have approximately 200. And it was only a couple of years ago, pre-pandemic, that there were only about 25 or 30 students enrolled in postgraduate programs. And so we are on sort of this evolutionary trajectory. And part of that is to address exactly sort of that logistical question. In that evolutionary process, I think we've taken a lot of steps to maintain integrity, holding a really close learning community and engaging in what you know, we describe often as sort of a head, heart, and hands approach, and really allowing our students to engage in authentic, embodied, and experiential learning as part of the learning community on site. We've transformed, actually, the vast majority of our programs to low residency. So whereas a couple of years ago, for pre-pandemic, again, we were looking at uh, programs which ran for about six months residential. And so, so participants, students had to uproot their lives and move to you know, this part of England and stay here for six months and then you know, transition again as they worked on their dissertations afterwards. So by moving to a different model and actually lowering our tuition fees by between 30 and 40% over that same period, we were able to sort of shift the balance of our demographic in really interesting ways and make our learning programs actually accessible to you know, people who have jobs and families and that might only be able to come for two weeks at a time and then have to go back to, to wherever they are at home and then come back and, and repeat that. And so you know, one of the challenges that we've been addressing over the last year and a half is how to take those really precious now two weeks that the students are with us and to recreate and hold that deep learning community as best as we could in a six-month residential period? And then also, how do you do that in an online context and in a hybrid context? Yeah, actually, I'm really curious because just to pull a thread out of what you're saying there, on, on the one hand, when I've read about Schumacher College, I think one of the principles that it upholds is that it is a immersive experience. You use the term head, heart, body, um, this entire kind of experience of being in the space of learning. And on the other hand, as you're talking, you know, you're making the move that many other universities are, are making to have that experience be increasingly accessible on the one hand, but also isolated on the other. How do you think about that kind of immersive learning community in an age of hybrid or mostly remote learning? Is it worthwhile to think about prioritizing the kind of community-based approach, even if it does tend to make it inaccessible for some? Is accessibility the, the higher value in this hierarchy of value? What's your thought? Mm. Well, I prefer to shy away from binaries if at all possible. So I'd like to have both. Um, and I think that's what we've been, you know, frankly, I think like every higher educational institution over the last two years, we've been rapidly evolving you know, into these spaces of hybrid learning, blended learning, online environments, and so on. And I think we've done this, actually, we put these steps in motion you know, before COVID-19, you know, with an eye toward how do we create a, a more accessible environment while maintaining uh, the integrity of the head, heart, and hands model. What we found over the last you know, year and a half, really, is that one, if you think about, sort of, if I can map out what the rhythms of a particular day might be, you know, there really is a sense of cross-program interdisciplinary uh, engagement you know, from the very morning meeting that, that happens right after breakfast and you know, meals are shared 
you know, among students and, and some staff and volunteers and so on. And then students have opportunities to work in the gardens or work in food preparation or clean up and, you know, really uh, sort of immerse themselves with the, with the hands part of the head, heart and hands, which also I think contributes to the heart model uh, that you're building community and you're building a sense of a sort of shared sense of love for place, love for a community and the society that you're in. And then by sort of scaffolding the head part of it, where you know, you're in lectures and in seminars with those sorts of experiences, and then the embodied experience of the courses, you're building this really immersive experience. And you know, we also, in addition to our you know, postgraduate and undergraduate portfolio, offer dozens of unaccredited short courses over any given year. And those are quite short and really discrete experiences. They might be anywhere from two days to, to a week to two weeks. And I've found you know, with students that come for a week in residence. And so they come on a Monday, they leave on a Friday. By the Wednesday, there's almost like a magic to the place, in a sense, because you participate in these rhythms of the day uh, and you become so immersed in that community. And effectively, your learning becomes held and encapsulated in this community moment that even within that short period of five days, you know, the students are having this deeply felt experience. And so seen that model function for, for many years now at, at Schumacher College, approaching the postgraduate programs with that same view. And then what's really interesting to me is how do we then extend that? Because of course, learning doesn't end when the students leave and they're held online by the instructors and a lot of self-directed online work in place. And it's that space that I've done, made a, given a few presentations and written a few things about how we actually explore holding learning community and embodied and experiential learning when you're separate. You know, one a good example of that is in one of our newest master's programs called Movement, Mind, and Ecology, which I developed and is being run by a colleague of mine, Dr. Rachel Sweeney, um, started in June with a split cohort, half the students on site and half the students all around the world, as widely distributed as Nepal and New Zealand and South Africa, to bring that cohort together, you know, in a hybrid way, and then support the students' experiences in those sort of far-flung places from Devon and sort of facilitate their connection to resources there, bringing their experiences tactile and embodied as they are in a digital way to the classroom so that we can all share in those experiences. So building that community in that way has been, I think, really successful in that context that we've had in that class. So here's something that I've been thinking about quite a lot lately, which is in the context of the humanities, I think a lot about where my students are coming from, particularly in the humanities. I like to say that I'm bringing in outside voices, meaning people who have historically um, been underrepresented in college campuses, marginalized communities, first generation college students. And I spend a lot of time thinking about what I want to teach them, but I also spend a lot of time thinking about where they're going to go afterward. And indeed, one of my ways of thinking about teaching ethics and technology is both that I think that it's incredibly important for underrepresented folks to be in the tech community and make a difference in tech culture and tech production. But I also think about the value of education, especially when many of my students are first-generation college students paying their own tuition and then cannot sort of take a humanities degree and then be under employed for the next four to five years, I think about what I am actually training them to do. And I think a lot about the fact that there's a growth in, or at least as I've established, uh, some research that demonstrates a growth in ethics and technology jobs. And so my hope is that I'm training them to be eligible and skilled to 
get those jobs and to succeed in them. Do you have a sense of how your training at Schumacher College enables your students to go out into the workforce? Do they go into specific professions that you're aware of? Are there professional tracks? What do they take from Schumacher College to the workforce that they can leverage into jobs? Well, that's interesting. One of the very first things that I flagged and had questions about when I arrived in 2019 was exactly this question. I think it's a really important one. It's one that anybody who's coming to the college wants to know before they arrive. Like, you know, where am I going to go? How is this going to be useful for me? And what is the road that, that I'm going to take to get there? And what's interesting, going back to the demographic shift and our change in curriculum you know, over the last couple of years, we traditionally, historically, you know, the college has had you know, overwhelmingly international uh, student cohort. You know, probably 85, 90% of the students were from all over the world. And they would often graduate and go back to you know, Brazil and Peru and Colombia and you know, Australia and South Africa and, and Japan and all, all the countries that they came from. And many of them would choose to start a little Schumacher where they were, because in a lot of ways, absolutely, disciplines and then sort of the, albeit transdisciplinarity, focus on regenerative economics or on ecological design thinking provides you with specific skill set, which we can then pair with practitioners, with partners, and give students sort of a stepping stone into the professional world. But what's really interesting to me is now, suddenly, not suddenly, but over the last three years, we've developed this global network practitioners of the Schumacher learning approach in these examples, I think, of vibrant learning communities in all of these wonderful places, which now allows us to build really robust connections with those practitioners in other places. And what we've just begun doing is developing and delivering learning across a network of partnerships in a sort of global distributed learning network. And for me, that's been really fascinating, particularly as we're looking to develop more programs in regenerative food and farming, for example, or sustainable food systems to sort of look at how we can create a network of learning that is really a conversation and is true to the co-creative nature of Schumacher's curriculum that we might work with a, a group in Peru, for example, and have a conversation, not that we here in Devon know all about regenerative agriculture and we'll tell you, but in fact, let's pool our resources, share our knowledge, and have an equitable knowledge exchange to co-create that curriculum you know, in the digital space so that we don't need to fly all over the world. But for me, that's really exciting and interesting. Again, the title of this conversation is Outside Voices. And one of the things that I think I mean when I say that word outside is both the idea of beyond, as we've been talking about, or transdisciplinary, as we've been talking about, or from the margins, as we've been talking about, But also the fact that this conversation is with somebody who literally spends a lot of time thinking about the outside. So separate from your work uh, and at Schumacher um, is your project Climate Run. What is Climate Run and what inspired you to start it? Well, first off, I'd I'd just say that I don't think that it's separate from what we've been talking about at all. Uh, And hopefully describing it will sort of show how those threads weave together. It's really a passion project, I suppose that started in 2013, 2014. It was a way to look at things that I had been really excited and passionate about and immersed in for for a number of years. And one of those of Climate Run was running through outdoor spaces, running in mountains, running on trails. You know, I grew up in New England in the US and spent a lot of time in the White Mountains of New Hampshire or the Green Mountains of Vermont. And, you know, it's a 
running up and down those mountains was an absolute joy as I was growing up. And then when I got older, you know, in my late 20s, early 30s, you know, realized that, okay, there are people that do this as a passion and there are races. And, you know, I began to really become involved with endurance running and ultra running races and, you know, tried my hand at running 50 kilometers or 50 miles or 100 miles and at a stretch and realized that I wasn't fast, but I could go fairly far and not stop. And that was fine. And then I thought, well, this is really fun and everything. But for me, it's not enough just to go do it for myself, you know, because it's, you know, a wonderful experience and incredibly immersive. And I really got to know myself in, in interesting and unique ways, in ways that I probably wouldn't have otherwise. But then I thought, how can I sort of capitalize on this experience and you know, use that sort of leverage this other thread of being trained in environmental humanities and you know, having conversations with students and with fellow academics about you know, what do we do in the face of you know, climate emergency or what do we do in, in the face of our increasing ecological challenges? I thought, how can I merge these two things together? And so it struck me that, okay, great. I have a really fantastic time you know, going up to the Arctic and subarctic and sort of running across these immense Arctic and subarctic landscapes to where uh, climate change is particularly visible with snow melt and glacial melt and you know, isostatic rebound and sort of changes in landscape that are you know, really quite visible and quite raw. And how can I have those experiences and then bring those back into a conversation and enfold them in whether it's presentations to groups of children or outdoor enthusiasts, whether it's doing some writing, whether it's you know, teaching in classes, you know, take that embodied experience and bring it into that conversation to potentially help nudge the conversation about our relationship to the more than human world. And so for me, it started out, well, oh, I'll go out, I'll run across Iceland, I'll come back, I'll talk about, we need to make different decisions as athletes, we need to you know, use more sustainable products, we need to really think about our impact on the land. And that's all absolutely important and essential. But what my conversation, my takeaway was, was the moment during one of those experiences, that sort of relational moment where you begin to inhabit the space between the human and the more than human worlds. And for me, it takes you know, endurance running to get to a point of vulnerability where effectively the lines between the human and the more than human are absolutely blurred. In that moment of vulnerability, I can see, all right, now I get it. Now I get the connection between myself and this world that is not me. And in fact, we see myself as more a part of the whole. And so what I'm trying to do in all of the classes that I've taught since really is to bring that back and sort of frame that in a way that, you know, most people aren't going to go out and do that sort of running. And that's totally fine. And, and they shouldn't, but they might go out for a walk or in their back garden, or they might go rock climbing, or they might go canoeing down the river. And like, how do we take those experiences and frame them in such a way so that participants can take away a sort of deeper relationship with the more than human world? I think about this a lot. I actually just yesterday finished uh, reading Ruki Murakami's What I Talk About When I Talk About Running, which of course is a reference or a nod to another very famous piece of literature, What I Talk About When I Talk About Love, which I believe is by John, is it Raymond Carver or is it John Cheever? It's one of the great New Yorker writers. There's Cheever and Coover and Carver, and I get them mixed up all the time. But what I talk about when I talk about love, and I think about what I talk about running, and I replace that word running with love, and suddenly it is an ethical question, which is how do I engage with my body? How does my body engage with the world? How am I 
both human, which we think about sometimes uh, as separate from culture, and how am I human, which we, of course, need to think about in terms of the fact that we are human animals, that we are also part of nature. And I think about this, you know, that word love brings us back to a, a kind of ethical dimension, which is that running brings us, or at least it brings me back to the fact that I'm an embodied creature, part of the natural world, not separate from it, that I am a human animal uh, myself. How do you think about this idea that human beings, on the one hand, inhabit technological culture? On the one hand, we think about technology, as things that separate us or allow us to exist apart from nature. And on the other hand, the human animal, which is, of course, uh, something that brings us back to our existence as contingent and emergent from the natural world. Again, I don't think that's necessarily a binary. Just thinking about the journey that you know I described through you know Climate Run and, and doing a number of those sorts of runs in you know really wonderful places led me to develop this this uh, master's program, for example. And I thought, oh my goodness, what a, what a privileged position I'm in to be able to take this life's passion and develop a master's program and then invite students to participate on it, you know, effectively lead them down a path to have these similar experiences. But as I've described, that class is split between students who are on-site and students who are off-site. So effectively, what we're doing is using the technology to actually share those embodied experiences and to leverage the experience and to sort of create this sharing of experience and knowledge that wouldn't be ordinarily possible, that we necessarily wouldn't have thought of five years ago of, of approaching a course in this particular way. And so I think it actually, my technology might enhance our opportunities to learn even more about you know, human relationships with the more than human world uh, in ways that we hadn't before. The word that comes to mind for me is post-humanism at this point. And of course, uh, we had Kate Hales, the famous scholar who coined that term on the show. I wonder, um, you know, because I've heard you talk a little bit about posthumanism in the context of Climate Run. How do you understand posthumanism in the context of Climate Run? What does posthumanism for you mean as a kind of concept? And what do you mean when you refer to your experiences with Climate Run being more than human experiences? So, the way that I described posthumanism to undergraduates when I taught at Sterling College in Vermont in a course that was actually titled Posthumanism was, you know, how do we take a image of the world and, you know, the way that we typically might see it today as well, humans are pretty much at the center of things. And what happens when we, you know, shift the focus um, such that humans are no longer at the center, but in fact, it's the socio-ecological system which is at the center of things. And it seems a really simple thing to do. But once you do that and think about its implications for everything from the courses that we offer here, anything from economics to design to you know, arts practice, in, to my mind and through conversations with students and others, it changes absolutely everything because it becomes the relationship. It becomes the more than human, really, that is at the center um, that we brought in from the periphery, again, to use that metaphor, and less so than sort of the focus of the individual or the focus of the human or the focus of society. So I think it's a way to move effectively past the prioritization you know, of the human individual or the human culture and think about the relational sort of processual moment of human and more than human uh, as being essential and core to our future. So one of the principles of Climate Run is that people can start to understand their relationship to nature differently. And that individuals can start to shift and change our perception. And I have a running kind of debate on this uh, show when I talk to climate activists or climate scholars. We had 
Dr. Mark Z. Jacobson on the show. We had Dr. Sandra Steingraber. We had Dr. Timothy Morton uh, all on the show. And I asked some versions of the same question. So I'll ask you it too in the context of your thinking about uh, climate and about sustainability and environmentalism. On the one hand, there are what are called techno fixers, people who think that by creating the correct technology or innovating in ways like you know, shooting darts up into the ozone layer to perhaps regenerate the ozone layer or introducing pH changes to chemical compositions in the Great Barrier Reef or creating uh, new forms of uh, carbon absorbing materials and return the earth back to part, at least, of its natural state. On the other side of the aisle, there are the conservationists, folks who say that we need to conserve planet, that we need to change our behavior radically. And in both the techno-fixer camp and in the conservationist camp, there are folks who say that the individual consciousness is what matters, individual behavior, and changing individual behavior really deeply matters. And therefore, by changing consciousness, the way that you're talking about, um, we can impact the changes uh, that we are making as humans to the environment. And on the other side, there are folks who say, you know, the majority of emissions are caused by structural, institutional means, by large governments, that individuals bring in their own totes to the grocery store and buy groceries is not going to change climate change. And that by putting the responsibility on individuals and by putting the focus on changing the minds of individuals, we are ignoring the catastrophe of industrial emissions. That's a lot. But again, we have kind of four camps here of overlapping folks, techno fixers and conservationists, and we might call social structure activists and individualistic activists. What's your take on these four camps? Do they overlap for you? Is there an ethic that you think governs your approach to prioritizing one or more of these camps over the others. And if I know you don't think in binaries, if you don't think in binaries, how do you understand the composition of these camps? As you were talking, I was thinking about a conversation I had earlier today with a farmer who, you know, farms probably about 400 acres uh, on the Dartington estate. And we were having a discussion about regenerative agriculture, uh, which is something that, you know, we're developing new programming in um, and developing initiatives in. And really thinking about, well, he's one individual farming 400 acres. And, you know, in that, there's this wonderful sort of synergy between raising heritage grains for wheat, which is milled nearby and sort of a relocalized food system. And then that, that milled grain is then, you know, baked into bread, you know, which I eat on a regular basis. It's sort of a, a really almost not quite, but almost closed loop system. And, you know, so your question sort of reminds me about, well, what is the impact of, of the individual? That one farmer, for example, produces you know, 40 tons of grain uh, per year and, you know, in order to create, you know, support this local economy, which is then supported by those people, by those individuals with tote bags who in and of themselves, by choosing to not use disposable plastic bags or whatever it is, that decision may not have a, a massive impact, but the buying habits and sort of the focus on I want to participate in a regenerative food system because I want to understand where my food comes from and I want to understand who produces it and really sort of become part of that larger community. For me, the individual can be responsible for a multiplier effect, uh, which then has a knock-on effect of potentially changing policy or you know, moving governments 
even slightly or corporations even slightly in a particular direction. And back to an earlier question that you've asked about, you know, what do we do to sort of help prepare our students to go out into the world? Part of the answer is, you know, we introduce them to partners with whom they can multiply their impact on the larger world. And so we give them skills and tools and say, all right, now we want you to turn away from us and do sort of public-facing, community-based events that have a much larger impact. You know, similarly to my own, you know, running across the Arctic as one person, that's not going to do a heck of a lot. Um, in fact, it has an environmental impact in and of itself. But then coming back and sort of using, using the appeal of that event um, as leverage to then make broader change. So I think I'd fall into whatever camp that was. But I think it, it is bridging sort of the individual and the social and the ecological in, in ways that hopefully we can use to leverage some significant change. We haven't talked about the techno fixers yet. <laughs> What's your thought about the techno fixers versus the conservationists? Do you have a do you have a camp or is that again a collapsed binary view? <laughs> I'm not a big fan of doing any of the things that you've described as the sort of techno fixers. I mean, I, I think there are there's probably space for those. It's not an area that I'm necessarily that connected with. You know, we tend to hear about some of the more sort of radical technological fixes that may or may not be part of the solution. I mean, I think to be honest, all four camps are sort of pieces of the puzzle to address our climate emergency, our climate crisis. You know, I think though that you know, from my perspective, maybe it's my background as a humanist and you know my career and profession as an educator, that by addressing the head, heart, and the hands, and shifting mindsets in communities, in cultures, in societies, you know, has a potentially a more long-lasting and significant impact than a techno fix might have in the short term. But that said, even part of our conversation with the farmer today was about carbon sequestration. So, you know, it depends what you identify as technology. And, you know, thinking about Schumacher College, named for E.F. Schumacher, the economist, on his book, Small is Beautiful, you know, would say that appropriate technology is the right way to go, not excessive, overabundant sort of misuse of technology. Uh, so if you're using a tractor or something to take your green manure and then subsoil it or, or plow it down or something to sequester the carbon that's been captured in that growing green manure, um, that's a technological fix. But it's also part of a long historic cultural tradition and part of a local food system. So it's all of a piece. What do you think the role of the tech industry is in thinking about sustainability and climate change? I think it has so much to share. So looking at data-driven decision-making about some of our engagements with the more-than-human world to address climate issues, with that sort of framework, effectively, without the technology, without the science, we could be responding to sort of perceived and felt changes in environment and changes in habits and seasonality, but effectively it does give us a much, much deeper and broader view of, well, exactly what the context is that, that we're facing right now. And I think that's absolutely essential. So we can make all of these changes that we've been talking about and describing, but I think it's essential to do that in the context of the scientific, which, which is leading us in that direction. How does climate run as a project and your engagement with education broadly um, interact with your thinking about technological production? Well, I mean, effectively, continue that story of climate run, that it is those moments of vulnerability out in, you know, wherever it is, that drew me to sort of shift my teaching um, and shift my engagement with students and, uh, and learning communities in a way that was sort of looking for greater application 
of some of the sort of philosophical ideas, whether it's posthumanism, whether it's you know thinking in sociological contexts. And you know, I think often there are sort of technological aspects to the application that the students might have of some of those some of those ideas and some of the things that we engage in. Can you give me a sense of how your students might approach, for example, a role in the tech industry differently than a traditional student might? Well, I would hope that they might approach it more holistically in a way. And for me, it's really interesting to think about how people might sort of leverage technology as a tool for meaning making, for storytelling, for engaging with, um, with communities, you know, to share projects, to develop spaces for people to have conversations, to come together, build coalitions, uh, and again, sort of leverage the power of that in the context of the changes that we need to make. I mean, I'm thinking of, we hosted recently a um, festival at Dartington called the Ferment Festival. It was in uh, October, I believe. And it was SciFest 14. So it was actually sponsored by SciLand, which is an arts science organization from Russia, and was really looking at fermentation from both an art and a science background and using a lot of technology, whether it was robotics or whether it was sound recordings or whether it was visual presentations to really look at the intersection of biological processes in the context of connecting human and the more than human world and how we might actually use um, technological devices and sort of apparatuses and ways of representing that to maybe interrogate what it meant to or what it means to have a relationship with our you know gut biome for example or with fermenting beer or you know with any of the other types of things that we do on the estate so it's a really fascinating way to take a look at ecological and natural processes and think about how technology can actually help us or see those in a different way, potentially share them with different audiences who might not be as engaged in an ecological process as they might with, be with a technological one, but effectively try to create a dialogue between the science and, and the art through the ecological lens. Yeah, this is something that is deeply important for me. You know, I think about the major problems of our times, COVID-19, disinformation on social media platforms and in the broader digital environment, you know, thinking about human rights in the 21st century, which I don't think you can think about with also, without also thinking about tech. And I think about the complexity of these problems and the largeness of them that I think is so significantly larger than any individual discipline. I mean, if you want to think about COVID-19, you of course have to know the technological dimension of vaccines and you have to know the biological dimension of how the virus interacts with our body cells. But you also have to understand human psychology. You have to understand politics. You have to understand cultural myths and the history of certain movements and ideas that might cause resistance to taking a vaccine in the United States and in broader human culture. I think about, you know, how complex those problems are and the fact that you're not going to have a person with one specialty or a group of people who share one specialty capable of solving these problems. It really requires a kind of psychological and intellectual agility to be able to think across boundaries and to be able to incorporate other fields of knowledge into any given solution also requires bringing, I think, people with very diverse perspectives, outside voices, you might say, to to the table. And, you know, I think about this and I also think about the idea that, and I'll credit the anonymous Twitter user who I came across in thinking about this, that the idea of inviting people to the table means that the table already is owned by someone. 
in the first place and that you have to invite outsiders into it. So I'm thinking about like the complexity of this problem and this idea of outside voices. Do you see Schumacher students as outside voices coming to a table that's already been set? How do you think about that table? And how do you think about the complexity of these problems and what you as an educator are doing to perhaps grapple with or transform the nature of the way we solve them? Well, it's interesting. And you mentioned that you had talked to um, Tim Morton earlier on for a podcast conversation. Yeah. And what you're describing reminds me of his, his wonderful book, Hyperobjects, thinking about you know, things which are so complex that you actually can't ever see them in a whole, and, but you touch them absolutely everywhere. And, and in some ways, they absolutely insinuate every aspect of our lives. And in a lot of ways, you know, those are the intractable problems that we engage with in, at Schumacher College, you know, thinking about, okay, let's look at you know, economic systems, um, which is just absolutely massive and engages with us uh, as humans and, and culture and societies on so many different levels, a lot of them completely unseen or unknown. And so how do we actually grab a strand of that and start to pull and see what happens? And I think you know, one way to approach sort of the, the need to have that rich conversation is, as we were talking about earlier, a really deeply transdisciplinary approach to thinking. And in a lot of ways, even today, sort of that real transdisciplinarity is quite radical because you're not necessarily saying, okay, well, you're going to study X and you're going to get this degree and then you're going to go off into this profession. You know, your question about well, where do our students go off um, afterwards, it's really fascinating to me that very often they go off afterwards, as I described, and want to model the experience that they've just had and share that with other people. And in a lot of ways, you know, that speaks to do we find ourselves as kind of the, this isolated bubble in the world? Are our students going to have an impact and, and meaning beyond? I think it's absolutely true. You know, we have some absolutely fantastic alumni who've been out in the world doing really wonderful things. Um, you know, Nigel Topping, for instance, who's the UK's um, high-level champion for COP26, was recently, you know, he's worked for years um, since it was canceled last year, you know, in advance of COP26. And you know, he learned, I'm not going to credit Schumacher College with everything that he learned, for example, but um, he's just one instance of somebody who's come from a transdisciplinary background and was able to sort of see some of you know, these intractable problems and really engage with them in a way that then was able to use that to, again, leverage some more significant change. I've been pretty committed to the idea that ethical approaches to technology depend on thinking across boundaries of ideas and including voices across not just a variety of um, disciplines, but also institutions and cultures and experiences. How can we as educators do better in cultivating this culture on a campus? Well, I think part of it is thinking about, well, where are the limits of the campus and what sort of partnerships actually, whether they're public-private partnerships, whether they are you know, partnerships with enterprises that might be you know, for us um, on a 1,200-acre rural estate. You know, we have over 25, I think, land-based enterprises do everything from you know, growing mushrooms to um, doing equine therapy agricultural therapy with veterans to growing heritage grains to biodynamic farming, all this sort of thing, land-based. And then we have probably about 80 other tenants who we often partner with in, in a whole host of different um, opportunities that we actually engage our students in those conversations and those relationships. So that, for instance, in, in one of our programs, we might have students do placements on any number of those or in any, any number of those partner enterprises that then I think really enriches the, the sort of conversations, the learning experience that they have. 
And I know there are many models out there in higher education that, that do similar sorts of things in terms of placements or co-op or, you know, or work experience. But effectively, what we have is a network of local and regional partners that I think can really enhance the, you know, again, the learning community model that we have. So for me, it's not sort of just where the classroom um, or sort of learning happens, obviously, not just within the boundaries of the classroom, and it spills out into the learning community that we have but also spills out into local and the regional networks and communities you know, to, I think, have a positive impact on our partners as well as on our students. To weave back into your answer, this idea of the outside voice and the way that it captures both of these two symbiotic dimensions of your work, on the one hand, in the arena of cultivating uh, both intellectual diversity, voices from outside, and on the other hand, the consciousness that you talk about of our outside, i.e. our environment, what value do the humanities broadly and humanistic values specifically play or what role can they play in cultivating outside voices? I think the humanities play an essential role. You know, I'm thinking again about some recent conversations about, you know, the role of arts and the role of literature, the role of storytelling in practices, whether they're in design or whether they're in um, in agriculture. And, you know, sort of agriculture is on my mind. I've been in a lot of conversations about that recently, but in a meeting of farm educators in the UK, for example, over the last you know several months, just thinking about, well, what is the role of arts as an entry point into people's greater understanding of food systems? Use that as a tool uh, to begin conversations and again, sort of change minds potentially and, and educate people through arts practice. And, you know, I'm doing some work actually with the UN Development Program working on a project called the Conscious Food Systems Alliance, which I think speaks exactly, even in its title, to, to what you're talking about, that, yes, we're developing a network of, a global network of food hubs and, you know, talking about you know, working together and sharing equitably knowledge and experience, but in the context of consciousness and in the context of sort of understanding the role of the human and the spiritual and the, um, the cultural in developing these food systems, which, you know, in some ways can be quite transactional or can be focused on sort of ecological systems, but really thinking much more broadly about the, the human element and sort of the humanist perspective um, is absolutely key. What one core lesson do you want to advocate for as a lesson on ethics and technology that you want listeners to take forward as we move deeper into the 21st century? Well, I mean, I might build on you know, some of the answers that, I, that I've already shared and sort of thinking about developing distributed global learning networks, for example, or, or using technology to be able to enhance our relationships with organizations, individuals, practices, uh, experiences that we might not readily have to hand. You know, for me, developing authentic, deep relationships through networks that are sort of regenerative and represent sort of equitable sharing of knowledge and experience, you know, across global distributed networks, as I've described. For me, in my work, I see that as being a really important direction and I think a really essential aspect of, of using technology in an educational setting and actually using where we've, many of us in education have been brought quite quickly, you know, through the pandemic and through COVID-19, you know, into these spaces of sort of online blended and hybrid learning, actually use the benefits that that brings, enhancing our opportunities to connect with people who might not be right here, or um, enhancing our opportunities to expand access and, you know, accessibility to our learning programs. And I think, you know, for me, if it's, if we can use technology in ways that 
can sort of help develop sort of the depth of these learning communities and help share experience across the world. You know, I think for me, I'm hoping that we can do a lot more of that. Thank you so much. The 22 Lessons in Ethical Technology series is co-sponsored by the National Science Foundation and the Cal Poly Strategic Research Initiative Grant Award. The show is written, hosted, and produced by me, Deb Donig, with production support from Matthew Harsh and Lee St. John. Thanks to Jake Garner and Emma Zimbro for production coordination. Our head of research for the series is Sakina Nuruddin. Our editor is Carrie caulfield Eric. To learn more about the 22 Lessons on Ethical Technology series, visit www.etcalpoly.org. And don't forget to subscribe to the show to make sure you don't miss an episode. You can find us on your favorite podcast app, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.